Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Jack and Dino from Seattle, and you're listening to Whatever Nevermind. I'm speaking with a, uh, producer Jack and Dino. Uh, is that the title I should give you, producer? You do you do so much. You're a musician, an engineer. Uh, uh, you know, I I just say noisemonger these days. <laughs> I mean, I'm a producer. I engineer. I mix. I do mastering, and I play in four bands right now. So you know, whatever you want to call me, I, I make loud noise. Right on. Uh, uh, a day after I first reached out to you, we did an episode covering the Deep Six Various Artists thing, and I stumbled across that, that your band Skinyard was on there with a couple tracks. Uh, any memories of, of putting that whole thing together, how it came up, you know, to be the project it is? Well, those are probably the least successful Skinyard tracks we ever recorded or released, and uh, they probably were the first things we recorded professionally. That was before I started doing my own recordings. Um, but it was where I met Chris Hanzik, who was doing the um, he was doing the Deep Six comp, and he was also he had just had a studio that had he had lost his building because the landlord had sold it. And while we were in the studio recording my band, he said, "Hey, I'm looking for a building to open my studio again." And I said, "Oh, there's a studio right by my house that just went out of business." And uh, we became partners, and that became Reciprocal Recording in 1986. So the fact that he was recording my band Skinyard for his Deep Six compilation record was kind of, you know, that kind of was what put us together and got this other phase of activity going. You know, when we were both working out of this building as Reciprocal Recording, you know, some of the Deep Six bands immediately came and started recording there with us, and... uh it, you know, Sub Pop started about a year, a year later, and, and everything went from there. Everybody in the band, like yourself, of course, is notable for so much stuff. Uh, Daniel uh, House, he would actually go on to be co-owner of CZ, if my information is correct. And Matt Cameron, who everybody knows, went on to Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Um, right. Ben McMillan, I couldn't find anything on. Did he kind of give up music after uh, Skin Yard? No, he was in Grunt Truck, for crying out loud. That's... No, I mean, you know who Grunt Truck was, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that was his, that was, I mean, Gruntruck was Skinyard's third drummer, plus Ben McMillan, our singer, okay. um, you know, and Tommy from The Accused. And, uh, you know, they ex- they coexisted with Skinyard in our last year and a half of existence. And then uh, when Skinyard ended, uh, he, you know, Gruntruck became Ben's entire focus, and they got signed to Roadrunner. They made those... Um, 
Well, I recorded those albums, actually. There's three Grunt Truck albums. One of them only came out like a couple of years ago. It was like a posthumous release. But uh, but that Ben is actually much, much more well-known uh, for Grunt Truck than he is for Skinyard because Grunt Truck was on a much higher profile record label than we were. I, that doesn't surprise me because I, I, I think maybe if I had heard the name Skinyard before, but I, I, I wasn't familiar with the music prior to getting into this Deep Six record, which was actually a fascinating listening going in and seeing because there are so many moving parts that, that would, as far as members of bands, you know, that would go on to do other things that really would define Seattle's sound. And this was like, you know, four or five years before things really blew up. Oh, yeah. No, it's true. And I'm, frankly, you would get a much better picture of Skin Yard by listening to anything but the Deep Six record. <laughs> it's a complete anomaly as far as our sound goes. We completely changed our, our whole direction after you, those for the initial two songs. You definitely stick out on that record uh, yeah, compared to other ball. bands. Yeah, kind of a, almost proggy. Um, yeah. At least by comparison, that's for sure. We were a little proggy at the time, but compared with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains later, much less so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, particularly later Soundgarden stuff, uh, like as of Bad Motor Fingers, got way more proggy than Skinyard ever was. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I, I I initially wanted to talk to you mainly about Ultra Mega OK because you you handled the uh, the 2017 deluxe reissue. Uh, if if I got everything right here, um, and uh, you actually did the demos for the record, and is it true that you were possibly going to remix the album initially before it came out? Yes, um, Kim and I had been talking about me remixing it almost from like a year after the record was released we were talking about it okay now, i had nothing to, i had nothing to do with the record initially other than doing demos for it you know i did screaming life which was the band's debut on sub pop mm-hmm. first EP. and then you know we started recording other stuff and then they got offered this record deal with sst and greg Ginn said hey i've got a guy to do it and you know sandra said all right you got a guy to do it let's do that so they recorded it with this other gentleman who wasn't really that accustomed to doing a band like Soundgarden. And actually, he's a very good engineer, but there's the circumstance in which they recorded it was Soundgarden was going on tour, and they would just kind of do a few days here and a few days there. And, you know, meanwhile, A&M is, like, calling them up. And, you know, they kind of just weren't... I, I always got the feeling that they weren't. They kind of took their eye off the ball when they were mixing it, okay. and they kind of settled on something because oh, we've got to get this record out. And almost immediately, I remember them saying, "Damn, you know, we should have we should have had you mix it." And you know, we Kim and I talked about it. Kim Thiel, we talked about it for like I don't know. 23 years, 24 <laughs> years. I kept calling him and say, "Kim, we're not getting any younger." You know, I think I wrote that in the letter. Notes. Okay. Said, We're not going to get any younger. We need to do this, you know. And, and, you know, then Soundgarden broke up, and, you know, it was never going to happen. And then finally, when they got back together, and Kim became sort of the caretaker of the back catalog, you know, uh, he was the guy in the band who was the most interested in being the curator. And finally, it was time, you know. Everybody was into it. Um you know, he was able to convince Sub Pop to, to reissue it. They got it away from SST. And, you know, we went and did it. And the thing is, it was mainly Kim and myself doing the mixing. Um, but, you know, we had Matt Cameron and Chris Cornell, 
you know, involved like remotely. Basically, I was sending everybody the mixes as we progress. You know, okay, sure. mix seven, mix eight, and uh, so everybody was involved in like you know their input. Uh, ben Shepard, of course, isn't on the record, so he pretty much just you know said, "Yeah, you guys do whatever you want." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the original bass player Hero was kind of the same way. He's like, "Oh yeah, just you know knock yourselves out, guys." So really, it was it was mainly you know Kim and Matt and Chris whose opinions I was going for, and then my own instinct. And uh, and it was hard because it, it was recorded. It wasn't really recorded the way I would have recorded it, but then every engineer would say that. Yeah, you know, we always say, "How many light bulbs does it take?" You know, you know that old joke. So, you know, but really, actually, it was a pretty good recording, and I didn't have too much trouble with it. It was a little slightly alien to how I do things, but you know, we managed to get it to sounding pretty good, in my opinion, at least for what I had to work with. Did you have like the um, original reel-to-reel tapes then, or? Oh yeah, well, no, we had the original reels. That's that was the point. I was going off. It's not a remaster. Right? Like, no, I, I get that. I just uh, wasn't sure what the how it was presented to you, but. No, no, we had the we had the original um, the original sixteen track tapes, transferred them, put them in Pro Tools, you know, modern format, um, and uh, yeah, no, I had the whole everything to work with actually. No track I- I'm not sure if the term is correct, but like uh, when a producer like records the effect on the actual track, is that called recording wet? And I guess my follow up would be: if so, is that how these were, or, or were they? Did you have just clean raw tracks that you could add any effects to after the fact? I had clean tracks. I had clean tracks. Okay, that, that helped a great deal because the record actually has a lot of reverb on it originally. It was yeah. kind of drenched in reverb, and. You know, that may have sounded okay in 1990, but later it sounded because the record sort of dated. Um, which you'll notice the first Pearl Jam record, oddly enough, was also drenched in reverb. And entirely independently of anything that, that I would have done, you know, Pearl Jam ended up remixing that record and taking a lot of the reverb off it. I com- I compare your remix to that one. I I, I uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now that Ultra Mega OK was a, lo- a distant like last place for as far as Soundgarden records. I mainly only owned it just because I was a fan, I had to own everything. Um yeah. when I was researching this, I, I remembered that I saw the that that deluxe reissue and I read more about it. And so I ended up using those tracks as far as like little when we're playing like little snippets of stuff to give people a flavor of the song we're talking about. Um I it is it, it it is a much more pleasurable listen. Like the songs stand out. It sounds more like Soundgarden if to come up with a dumb way to explain it. Like the the original release just it it's kind of muddy to me. It doesn't really it's you, you don't hear the gu- guitars as clean in and No, it's kind of shrill and scratchy and yeah. muddy and just everything's kind of obscured with this weird this weird sound. I mean, it's yeah, no, I was exactly the point. It's like I know what Soundgarden should sound like for crying out loud, you know. And, and it was, you know, it was time to do that. So now the record is, you know, it, it sits comfortably in their catalog where it should have all along because those are really good songs. Absolutely, that's a good batch of songs that they had there, and they needed to be presented correctly. So, you know, I had the same fun of remixing um, Rehab Doll for Green River a couple of years ago. Okay, that was actually equally satisfying. Because that was another record that was done, you know, badly with 80s aesthetics that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> other than, you know, again, I did the demos for it, and, and, you know, later the record came out, and I, I sort of thought, what happened? Um, but it was also another case where the band had broken up while they were mixing the record. 
you know. Yeah, who, uh, <laughs> you know, who you know, was Which the... never works out very well, you know, so I got to remix <laughs> Elton Megan. I got to remix Elton Megan a couple of years ago. Yep, yep, I meant, I remember I, I met Jeff at Chris Cornell's funeral. He said, look, now's the time to remix that thing. Go ahead and do it. And I said, okay. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Well done. Uh, do, yeah, is the original uh, producer was his name Dino? Ca- I, I'm going to butcher his name. Dino Camulet, or uh, his name was Drew. Drew, Drew. Drew. See, I told I don't. Drew Camulet. Yes, Drew Camulet. He's the original producer engineer, and he has a listen. He's got a very good. He's got a very good um, discography. Good reputation. He's worked with a lot of cool stuff. Do, and, do you uh, happen to know if Drew ever heard your remix? I don't know because I actually don't know Drew. I don't know how to reach him. I don't have his phone number. I have no idea. I hope he likes it. I just don't really know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, wherever he is, God bless him because he gave me really good tracks to work with. Yeah, all right. Uh, you mentioned Hero. What's he up to? Uh, he's in a band called Stereo Donkey. Hmm. They're kind of a surf band, but I say that very guardedly because they're sort of not really a stereotypical surf band. They're quite a bit more than that. Hmm. So I'll check. I'll look. I'll look them up, man. Uh, yeah, my own my own band NKB Ultra has played two shows with Stereo Donkey. They're pretty cool. NKB Ultra, MKB, MKB, NKB okay. Ultra. Yes, it's called MKB Ultra. That's one of my four bands. <laughs> uh, well, you got to stay busy, right? I do. Uh, let me see. Let me get some quick thoughts on you and on, on a couple of the other records on the list. Then you did Green River Dry as a Bone, which came in at number twenty. Uh, originally, yes, did that on the A track. That's one of the very first records I recorded at Reciprocal. Any special memories from doing that? It was an EP. If I if if I got my notes right here, it was an EP. The deluxe reissue. Now you should know that the deluxe Green River did three records in total. The first record was called Come On Down, and they recorded it with Chris Sanzik in like nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five, before D six. Uh, and then I did Dry as a Bone at Reciprocal in nineteen eighty six. And then they went and they recorded Rehab Doll, which was their third and final record in, oh, I don't know, 1987, 88. And, uh, no, it would have been 87. Uh, and I had nothing to do with that until I got to, you know, remix it. Um, Dry as a Bone, I didn't remix because it was fine the way it was. Uh, I was happy with my work. What I was able to do for the deluxe reissue, because both Dry as a Bone and Rehab Doll have been deluxe reissue. Mm-hmm. as double vinyl and long CD. Because Dry as a Bone, actually, there was an album's worth of material. Sub Pop only chose to release five songs. But there were actually oh. eight or nine songs recorded at the time. So the Dry as a Bone reissue has been filled out with those songs, plus some other stuff that I discovered that nobody had ever heard before that they had recorded elsewhere that had never been mixed. Um, plus the two songs from the Deep Six record were added to the Dry as a Bone reissue that came out a couple of years ago. So, And I got to remaster the whole thing from the original tapes, which had never been used. So the Dry as a Bone now is a much better record. And then Rehab Doll was a whole other story because I got to remix the album and add my own demos of the same album onto it. So the Dry as a Bone reissue is also kind of a, it's, well, excuse me, did I say Dry as a Bone? I meant Rehab Doll. Yeah, okay. The Rehab Doll reissue is I remixed the album plus was able to add the track demos that nobody started. So it's kind of like what I did with Ultra Mega Okay. It's a different record now. And you'll listen to it and realize that this is a way better band than you thought they were. 
Well, I'll definitely check it out, and I'll probably uh, use the deluxe edition for when we get to dry as a bone as well. Um, yeah, and and uh, and uh, the the yeah, do that, and then I also rehab doll once again was an eight song record when it came out, but ten songs were recorded at the time, so now it's well, it's just a brilliant record. I yeah, just okay. I had no idea the band was that good because again, it was a record <laughs> that was drenched in reverb and had like terrible eighties production applied to it. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know. You're probably giving yourself a little too much of a hard time, but. Uh... Well, I didn't record rehab. Oh, oh right, right, right. Sorry, I got, I got my wires crossed myself. My Again, apologies. it was like ultra mega. It was like ultra yeah. Okay, it wasn't Drew Cannell. It was a different guy who recorded it. It was someone else. Because uh, anyway, never mind. This is. I'm actually patting myself on the back too much, to be honest. Uh, I get it now. Right now. Yes, uh... let's stop this right now. But I'm just telling you, <laughs> if you like this music, you need to hear the remix of rehab because you will really enjoy it because it's just fucking rock. It's just a way better record. Yeah, there are uh, about four records on this list that I'm not familiar with, and Green River is one of them. So I'm going to go kind of a deep dive on them, I think, in my prep. Um, But, of course, Mark Arm would go on to do Mud Honey, and you you took care of their their record that came in at number five, Super Fuzz Big Muff, again, an EP. Yep. Again, I think we recorded a few other songs at the time, which I don't know where they ended up, but probably on singles. No deluxe Uh, edition of that one yet? There is a del- oh no the deluxe edition of that has been out for years actually. It's okay. Got all the extra the extra tracks are all on it actually. So now that's been available forever. Um, the original record was five songs I think, uh, five or six I don't remember. Um, and uh, the the CD issue that's been out forever is like you know I don't know seven eight nine ten songs something like that. Okay. I'm almost certain. At least there's at least one extra song. Now remember the first thing I recorded for them was "Touch Me I'm Sick." Mm-hmm. It was the same. And uh, Touch Me, I'm Sick was a 7-inch and, and Sweet Young Thing. And that pretty much was the, that was like the opening salvo that sort of put them on the map. Um, that got everybody's attention. And then, then we did the EP. And, you know, I did the second record as well. And then later I did, I think it was the fourth or fifth record, My Brother the Cow. Uh, so I got to work with them. Yeah, I got more than my share of, of Mud Honey time. And I, I always loved those guys. They're a brilliant band. Was there any talk of you doing piece of cake when they signed to a major label? No. Okay. <laughs> That's a quick answer. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you this. Coming at number 13 on the list is probably a band you get asked about the most. Uh, Nirvana, you did the Bleach uh, album. Sure. Um, is is it true you did that for a flat fee of about 600 bucks? Well, it was a flat fee. We were charging hourly at the time, but I think the studio was only like 12 bucks an hour or something. Okay. Uh, but that's what it came to. Um and uh, it was like something like six hundred and six dollars and some change. The, the number is, has been. I know Michael Hazard imprinted the number in his book. I don't remember the precise number. It was six hundred and six dollars and something. That was when you know, I went back and looked at the studio lock sheets and just added the fees up, and that's what I came up with. Um, so it's uh, it was a pretty quick one. It was eight track, you know, mm-hmm. but I knew they were a brilliant band. Could you kind of see what they were going to become, or is that's just too hard to predict? It was hard to predict. I didn't know they were going to become uh, as... I didn't know the songwriting was going to become as poppy as it did. And I say that term very loosely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I knew they were a brilliant band. The thing is, I you know, I, I record a lot of bands that I think are brilliant bands. That doesn't mean the rest of the world will agree. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so, I, I can relate to that. Know, yeah, who knew? You know, I mean, we did, wasn't what you know what happened was certainly not to the, the, the degree that I would have expected. How long did it take to record? Something. I mean, in in total studio time, it was something like thirty hours. Oh, I guess we could do the math, huh? You said twelve bucks an hour, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I don't know if that math works out actually, because I was always a little bit pretty. I was pretty flexible about it, what hours I actually wrote on the watch. Sure. It was something like that. I mean, it was, you know, I remember looking, working it out one time. It was 30-something. Well, that one got a 20th anniversary edition. Were you asked to be involved in that at all? Yeah, I supervised the remastering. And also, the 20th anniversary, the double, the double, the full double deluxe edition just got a complete live show on it uh, as the second disc, which okay. was a show that they performed in Portland around that time, 1990, I think it was. Um and uh, again, we had actual multi-track. And as a matter of fact, the multi-track I think was recorded by the same guy that did Ultra Mega OK. I think okay. it was recorded by. I'm pretty sure Drew Canyonette recorded that multi-track. Um, and uh, so again, I had the uh, I had the 16-track tapes to work from for the uh, for the bonus live show, and that was pretty satisfying because there's some songs on there that I don't think live versions exist anywhere of them. Okay. Um, couple of the songs from Bleach that never got played after that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, actually, I think those are the only live versions of a couple of songs. But, yeah, and I got to supervise the remastering. I didn't do the remastering myself, but I got a guy named George Marino in New York. Yeah, I think he's dead now, but I think he did for me, and he did uh, the mastering. I think he did the mastering. He might have been dead by the time we did Ultra Mega Okay. I can't honestly remember who did okay. that. That might have been a different guy. But I did get George Marino to do Bleach. I was pretty happy about that, and he did a great job. He so. did a ton of CD masters when CDs first started to be kind of more common in record stores. Just a lot of well, he old ones. He did a lot of, you know, he did like the, the Zeppelin box set, you know, when, mm -hmm. when Jimmy Page basically said, it's time to remaster these CDs because all these original CDs sound terrible. And, you know, he did a bunch of stuff for the Hendrix estate, and I thought, this is the guy to remaster Blake because <laughs> he's going to respect the original sound. He's not going to squash it and make it sound all stupid and modern. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, I, you know, I had a long talk with George. I said, look, this is, you can't go squashing this and making it, you know, t you know, five times louder than it was and compressing the hell out of it. And, and uh, you know, because everybody's used to the way it already sounds. So it needs to sound better but it doesn't need to sound dramatically different. You're not, there's no problem that you're solving here. It's not like, a, you know, it's like you don't fix it if it isn't broke. It was just a matter of just a, a, a conscientious and just a better sound, really. And, um, you know, because we were dealing with masters that were 20 years old. And, you know, digital technology has come a long way mm -hmm. in the last 25 years. Very you know, much so. Those old CD masters, just there, there are many reasons why they don't sound that good, and one of them is that the, the, the technology just wasn't that good then, and we mm -hmm. have much better technology for making digital masters now, regardless of what decisions are taken in the master itself. The actual underlying technology is much more high fidelity. So it was basically, I, I, I told him, let's apply the, the, the doctor's motto here, which is first do no harm. Yeah, that was, and, and I was happy with that, that I, I was allowed to be involved in that, because, you know, I basically approved it, and uh, he did the work. Uh, I, did, I just did the mix 
mixing of the live material that okay. was added. Being that you had worked with them on the album prior, and you know, just being someone who's clearly a, a pretty major part of the Seattle scene at the time, probably still. But um, did you get a chance to hear Nevermind before it was released? No, I well, didn't. In fact, the first time I now here's the thing: they did do some recording with Butch Big um, before they went and recorded for the major label album. In other words, they did some recording with Butch Big for what would have been the second sub-pop record. And Do you know if that was done had, in Pachyderm? Or? Yeah, I think it probably was. Those okay. demos were done with Chad Channing on drums, and I think there are six, there's five or six songs. I think there's one song that wasn't in five or six songs that were ultimately re-recorded for Nevermind that was on that tape. So, And they gave that tape. I had a copy of the tape, and, and so did quite a few people around here, because they gave it to sub-pop, um, as like, you know, here's some songs that we think are going to be on the second Nirvana record, but right then Geffen came along and blew that whole, you know, thing out of the water. So I think all of that stuff has probably ended up on the various Nirvana reissues or box sets or, or whatever, you know, it's all ended up getting released eventually. Yeah. So I heard basically, you know, half of the songs, something like that before it became a major label record. When you finally got to hear the whole finished uh, Geffen release, uh, what were your first thoughts? Do you even recall? Well, I was out on tour with Skinyard at the time. Okay. And we started hearing it in people's... We started hearing it. People Somehow we were in Europe when the record came out, and tapes of it you know, had been leaking out promo cassettes, because that's, of course, what people did in 1980 or 1991. Right. Promo, promotional cassettes is what the record labels would send out. And various people had gotten promotional cassettes of it in Europe as we were touring. And they were losing their minds over this record. Like, what the hell is this? And, um, you know, we started hearing it. Uh, you know, we the, the promoter would have a copy of it and would play it over the club PA while we were setting up, or we would hear it. You know, it was it was kind of crazy starting to hear this record and, and thinking, wow, what's this is amazing what's happening. But that's another story. I think technically the record may have come out. Did it come out in September or October? What was I believe it? it was definitely fall. I want to say September 91. And I think the first time we heard it, I think the band, my band was touring in the Midwest and we heard it on the, we heard it smells like King Spirit on the car radio and we almost lost our minds. It was <laughs> like, what? And then, uh, and then we went to Europe immediately after that in, uh, in October. And that is when it started really blowing up and we started hearing people at home we would call back home and people would be like this record is entering the charts you know and it kind of went from there how important do you think dave grohl uh being the drummer on that was to that album success i don't know i don't know that's a good question because dave himself would uh and has publicly admitted that he was actually playing chad's drum parts almost okay. exactly hmm. you know the drum parts on the demos that they made when Chad was in the band are substantially similar to the drum parts that are on those same songs. Okay. Um, never mind. But, you know, Dave is a much harder player. He's a much harder hitter. He's a more explosive drummer. And, you know, Teen Spirit was not on the original demos. That was a new song. Okay. There's no Chad, there's no Chad version of Teen Spirit. That's all Dave. Um, so, you know, Teen Spirit was the song that... that just, you know, blew them wide open, and that was a new song that was written with Dave Grohl in the band. 
So, and that definitely is an iconic drum open. <laughs> it really is. I mean, you know, there's a few iconic drum parts on that record. And, and also, In Utero has some incredibly iconic drum parts that are, you know, it's pure Dave. Sure. So Dave was, Dave was huge in, I think, you know, especially for their live films, because he's so rock solid and such a hard hitter and just so explosive. You cannot discount that. Well, that album was definitely a game changer. There's there's no doubt out there. It, it it comes in at number one on the list. Spoiler alert to anybody listening to the show. Oh, um, so I, I'm dropping like little snippets of yours and all the guests I have on the show. How would you sum up that record looking back? I mean, it, it, it just changed everything. I don't think it's undersold how much grunge changed music starting with that record. Well, it was funny for me, and I'll tell you why. Because for me, grunge had peaked in 1989. You know, because uh, <laughs> and seriously, because I was involved in it, and I, I saw the English press going nuts for Tad and Mud Honey and, and all this other stuff. Um, and you know, Soundgarden was already well on their way. Remember, we had major label records already in the pipeline before mm-hmm. the pipeline. Allison Chains, Allison Chains, Soundgarden. Um, I think Screaming Trees. Now, I don't know, I'm trying to think if uh, the first Screaming Trees record may have come out around the same time, but Screaming Trees already had like four or five albums under their belt, Mm -hmm. even though they were indie records, you know, before, um, and none of those albums were on Sub Pop, there was an EP. Um, You know, so there were bands that already were in the pipeline working their way through it and getting people's attention when Nevermind just kind of dropped out of nowhere and just blew everybody out of the water. Um... So the thing was already happening. Bands were already getting signed. People were already talking with major labels. They were already sniffing around Seattle looking for grunge bands. You know, and Nirvana was just one of those bands that got snatched up at that time. And But you got to remember Pearl Jam, too, around the same time. Pearl yeah. Jam came. You know, so this was not... Nirvana was not an isolated phenomenon, is what I'm saying. No. I mean, it definitely um, opened the doors for a lot of those bands. Um, yeah. Pearl Jam. Well, I think... no, I'm saying the doors were already open for a lot of those bands oh, already. All right. A lot of those bands had already been signed to major labels. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah. Some yeah. of them already had major label records out before, um, before um, Nevermind appeared. I could be wrong. No, you're definitely right, I, factually, I as far as. That, yeah, I think it's possible that Facelift and Louder Than Love may have been released earlier than that. They definitely and, were. Uh, and and I think. Uh, I don't have in front of me. I think Bad Motorfinger was slightly ahead of it as far as release date. Wasn't that 91? Or was that. Yes, 90? I think it may have been. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was around the same time. Yeah. And I also think. Um, you gotta, you got to. Don't forget uh, Mother Love Bone. Right. You had a record out before any of it. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, there's also Queens Rock and that whole other business that gets pretty much overlooked, uh, you know, the metal bands. So, <laughs> you know, there was stuff coming out. There was stuff from Seattle that was getting into the major label pipeline. And this was like when Nevermind came out, it was like suddenly whacking everybody on the head with a 2 by 4 It was like, wait a minute, there really, really, really is something happening here in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, the whole world just became laser-focused on what was going on here, and people just suddenly discovered all these other bands that had been signed to major labels, The Trees, um, Soundgarden. Melvins. Uh, Jam. Um, the Melvins, you know, Melvins got signed a little bit later. That's more or less post-Nirvana they got signed. Okay. Um, and uh, Mudhoney also, uh, around the same time, 
you know. So it was um it was a pretty interesting um period actually. And you know, Nirvana basically really focused everybody's attention because, you know, people went, Holy shit, there's you know, not only are these bands good, but this one is on the top of the charts. What the hell does this mean? So yeah, and everybody from JC Penny was marketing clothes in in a couple of years. I remember there yeah. were guitar pedals. I, I want to say DOD or Digitech had one that was called the Grunge pedal. I um, have one. Somebody gave me one years ago. They said, <laughs> "Here, you need to own this." Yeah. <laughs> I uh, said, okay. Do you so think that's ridiculous? No, it sounds great. It sounds okay. like a super. It's a. It's a. The pedal sounds exactly like a super fuzz, which was a classic fuzz pedal sure. from the '60s. It's basically a reissue of the super fuzz, from what I can tell. And that's um, where uh, 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 the, the album title "Super Fuzz uh, Big Muff" came from. Was those two pedals? Of course, correct? yes. Because yeah, because yeah, those guys had those pedals. Well, do, do you like the term grunge, or does it uh, something that kind of irritates you because it turned into a product? Or I mean, what are you? Well, it ir- it irritated me plenty at the time. Now I don't really care. Okay. Um, and you know, in retrospect, here's the thing: is that at the time when um, when the grunge thing exploded, I kind of got, you know pigeonholed somewhat as being like the grunge guy and you know the fact is at this point i've made like 600 plus records in 14 countries and um you know most of them have nothing to do with anything that you would call grunge you know they're just rock records Mm -hmm. of you know of all genres really um so enough time has passed that i don't really concern myself with it anymore because my career has its own direction and there's enough records that people have heard that you know, nobody associates me with that particular thing. But there's always people who are like, yeah, we want this particular vocal reverb or, you know, we want this guitar tone. And I go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember how to do that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but for the most part, you know, I don't, I'm not still wearing those um, flock ears, if you will. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. That kind of like, you know, where you get sort of typecast in one role. Yeah. You know, it took me a while to get past that, but by the end of the 90s when I was doing Zeke and, and Zendorilla and the Makers and the Murder City Devils, and that whole second wave of Seattle rock bands came about, and nobody was talking about grunge anymore by then. And that was 20 years ago, so things are fine. Yeah, and I definitely encourage anybody to go to your website, jackandino.com, um, uh, and, and look at the, I mean, you've worked at, I, mean, I couldn't believe how long the list was. It's, it's just amazing. You you must never have any free time to do stuff like this. I don't. I'm pretty much doing this 24-7. And, you know, I need to add, like, 30 more records to that list. I haven't <laughs> updated it. I haven't updated it in almost, like, a year. And I need to, like, this is one of those things I just don't have time to deal with. I have one last question for you, and I'm asking everybody this. So hopefully this doesn't come off too dumb because of where you're coming from. But uh, it gets grunge gets blamed for killing hair metal a lot. What's your opinion? Did grunge kill hair metal? I'm talking warrants, those kind of bands. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, I, you know, I think it would have died anyway because yeah. it was. It was. Here's the thing: is that particular thing had become extremely formulaic yeah, you think <laughs> extremely formulaic and it, you know any popular musical style becomes formulaic it happened to grunge you know, the grunge thing did too because yeah. i you know i always considered the later bands that had nothing to do with seattle to be somewhat trend jumpers i'm not mentioning any names but sure some of those records sounded extremely derivative to me like oh you just happen to have this sound you know what a coincidence um and you know i still hear bands like that from time to time some of them are even bands that I've recorded, but they're from other countries. I give them a pass. Um, but, uh, but you know, there was, um, 
there was definitely some sort of formulaic thing going on in the eighties. There was like a, it was almost like there was a hair metal factory in L.A. You know that just kept cranking out these bands with dumb names and dumb hairdos, <laughs> and and all of them presented themselves as metal bands and heavy rock bands, but they always had a sappy power ballad, which was the one that would get on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, which was a fairly cynical way of basically it worked for Ozzy, and so everybody else wanted to do that same formula. God bless Ozzy. I don't knock Ozzy for anything. It's his own deal. But, right. you know, everybody thought, well, if we, we make a sappy ballad with strings and have, you know, in the middle of the other 10 hard rock songs on our record, we'll get on the radio. And it worked over and over again. Um, but I'm not really an authority on this because I didn't really like that stuff. Well, I... Th- you know? You're an authority on on the Seattle scene, and you know the impact. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I'm not an authority on hair metal. I mean, I started to me that the good bands were Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and ACDC, and pretty much the 70s hard rock stuff was what I grew up with. You know, and for that matter, Motorhead and Iron Maiden, bands like that. I mean, I loved that stuff when it came out. Uh, But, uh, you know, and then by the late 80s, it was like everything was drenched in keyboards and reverb and, and, you know, drama and, and corniness and, and what's, what's <laughs> happened here you know uh here's rock and roll we need some actual rock and luckily i found myself in a position to make some and uh there's no doubt that the bands that came out of seattle that really hit all had their own sound too like they were identifiable well yeah i'm glad to hear you say that they didn't all sound the same because really you know does mud honey sound like sound no nope. does pearl jam sound like allison chains no not really uh, you know, did the Melvin sound like any of the above? No. <laughs> to their credit, Pearl Jam doesn't even sound like uh, Mother Love Bone, really. No, they don't at all. They never did. All right. Thank you very okay. much for your time. Was right. there anything else you wanted to promote? Let's see. Uh, I'm in a band right now called Sky Price Mary, which has been around for many, many years. I'm in a current version of the band, and we just released a record last week. It is called... Oh, geez, what's it called? See, that's how brain dead I am. The band is called Secrets of a Red Planet, or the album is called Secrets of a Red Planet, and this came out a week ago. Like, literally, I think, last Friday. Um, and I play guitar on it, and Kevin Whitworth from Love Battery plays guitar on it. Okay. So it's very much of a guitar rave-up reimagining of this band. Skycries was kind of a space rock band in the 90s and 2000s. Um, didn't really fit in with the Seattle Grunge thing. But for some reason, myself and the other guitarists from Love Battery have wound up in this version of the band, and it's much more of a guitar psych version of the band. So I think it's going to throw people for a loop a little bit. Um, let's see. My own band, MQB Ultra, has two records out, and we're working on a third. Um, we made our last record free on Bandcamp just actually last week. Okay. The first song on there, the first song on the record is called Dress for the End of Time. And <laughs> it's like, it's a very cynical song and it's very topical now, uh, strangely enough. And, um, let's see, I'm in a psych band called Beyond Captain Porca. And this band <laughs> is instrumental and has no singer, no songs, no rehearsals, and no overhead. It's guitar, bass, and drums, and we basically get on stage and improvise for a half an hour. And we record every hill and we put them up on Bandcamp each time. And most of them are multi-track hmm. recordings now. So it's kind of like, you know, if you want the Grateful Dead, there it is. You know, it doesn't sound like the Dead because we're much 
coming from a much different direction. And it's definitely not for everybody. It's music for long attention spans. But there seems to be a, a there seems to be a fan base developing for it. So whatever, beyond Captain Orca on Bandcamp. And then uh, the last band is called The Purple Strange. And we are about to release a record. And this is of interest because this is myself on guitar. And the other guitar player from Love Battery is playing on it, which is Ron Benning. Um So Ron and I are the two guitar players in that band. And Kurt Danielson from Ted is playing bass for it. Oh, wow. So it's a little grunge mafia thing going on with this band <laughs> called the Purple, the Purple Strange, actually. And um, we've only released, I think, one song uh, officially. It's on SoundCloud somewhere. It said it's um, called The Purple Strange? The Purple Strange is the name. Or actually, Rock Dye. It's just Purple Strange. Okay. And uh, and so that literally, uh, the record is recorded, and we're just sort of trying to finish the cover art so we can figure out some way to release it. And with everything going on right now, I don't know how that's going to come about. It might just be digital only. Um, but there is a single on SoundCloud, and we've only played, I think, three or four shows. So go figure. I, you know, the, 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 some of us here in Seattle just can't stop playing music, is what it amounts to. I'm in two different bands with the two different guitar players from Love Battery right now. Go figure. Uh, can we find all this on your website? By the way, let me say that web address again ndino.com, your last name, E N D I N O.com. Correct. Uh, JackandDino.com also uh, routes to it. But okay. The underlying, the underlying domain name is Dino. Just whatever one you wish. Well, Jack, you gave me way more time than I think we anticipated, but I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Yes, thank you. Well, I hope it goes well. I didn't know you were doing a podcast. I thought it was going to be a, a printed thing, but hey, whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought I made it clear, but if I didn't, I apologize. Um, no, no, I just probably skipped over, skimmed over it with my eyeballs. I'm, I hope your audio is good enough for this. We seem to have a pretty good connection.
I'm calling. Is, is this Jack? Yes, it is. Hey, Jack. Uh, Baco from uh, Cobras and Fire. I emailed you a little while ago. A couple days yep, ago. Yep. No, I know. I remember. I actually just was uh, almost not going to answer your call, and then I remembered, like, oh, right. <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.